Well, now, a couple of commercial announcements. Come on over, John David. Have a seat over here in our living room. Um, you may have heard that the uh, Salvador concert is sold out. That's a vicious rumor. That is not true. Through the magic of our copy machine, we made more tickets. So, yeah, so if you want to be in the DVD of Salvador, we have a few tickets up at the uh, Parchments Bookstore available for you. It's going to be a fun night. It really is. Uh, they're a terrific group, a lot of energy, electricity. They're bringing a large uh, TV crew in and producing a DVD right here Friday evening, 7 p.m. And we invite you to join us. We'll have a, have a great time. And then this weekend, Dr. Raul Reese will be here uh, in the pulpit. And you can be sure, you can be certain any friend you bring uh, will hear the gospel. So if you want to reach out to a family member and hear a real uh, straightforward message with a, a lot of zeal, Pastor Raul, all four services. And then our... Uh, Calvary Family Retreat to Glorietta. Uh, we have a drop deadline. This is the land of Minyana. And uh, we, if you're thinking of going, the absolute drop deadline, and that name comes from if you go past that line and try to register, we say drop dead. So uh, is uh, June 15th. I'd like to have you in before then, but it's going to have Gail Irwin, a concert by Out of the Gray, Hawaiian Luau, and it'll be a great time at Glorietta. So get hooked up if you plan to go. Well, you enjoyed John tonight? Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. We're enjoying Jesus tonight, man. Yeah. Now, this is John David Webster. Uh, he's been most recently in, in Colorado going by John David. But now if you move to Nashville, you have to be J.D. That's right. When okay? you go past that, you know, I don't know what the line is exactly, but it becomes J.D. down there. The Mason-Dixon line. That's right. It sounds like J.D. or something like that. Did, did you see the uh, USA Today uh, cover story today about that I think six out of the ten top country music songs right now have either faith or God as their theme? Interesting. Why, why would that be? Man, um, it's about time. That's all I got to say. Um, you know, there's a joke how many uh, country western singers that take the screw to light bulb, and it's both uh, of them. Key. Wanted to change it, write a song about the old one. There you go. Well, we're talking tonight, uh, John, about um, greatness. And in music and in Christian music, unfortunately, there's an issue of celebrity. You're on stage, you're under the lights, and, and all that. Uh, how do you avoid becoming a Christian celebrity? It's real easy, man. No one knows who I am, so I just uh, I just stay out of the limelight. But it's a natural thing that happens with me. No, I think uh, I think as always, you know, um, we always want to keep it real and realize that no matter whether this uh, we're on stage or wherever we are, we're a part of the body of Christ, and and um, that's what that's what counts. That's what matters. Well, let me pursue that line of, of reasoning for one more one more step because at your stage uh, where you are, you know, beginning your career, a lot of talent. A lot of fire is great. How do you, in the years to come, uh, check yourself, or have you given, given thought to the idea of how you prevent that, J.D.? <laughs> I think one way is a wife. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, it doesn't take too long before I'm out, you know, on tour or whatever, and I come home, and my wife's like, I'm telling her all, every, you know, everything that's happened. She's like, great, that's great. Why don't you take out the trash? So you get humbled really quick when you get home, and you realize that, um, you, you know, that's what that's part of it. I think another part of it is uh, good friends. 
you know, surround yourself with good people that love the Lord and just keep it real that um, keep the main thing, the main yeah. thing, which we know is Jesus. Right. So. Keep it accountable. Amen. Let's uh, let's turn the corner and talk about your background. At 12, you made a commitment to Christ, didn't follow through on it, made a steep dive into the world up in Boulder and all that that uh, comes with. Uh, speak to a, a parent tonight who may have a teen in that condition, in the in the prodigal state when they're still out in left field. Yeah, that's. Um, I think it's. I think for each one of us, a lot of times we don't know what what hot is until we know what cold is, and vice versa. But we learn those parameters. I think as a parent, is just to pray that God would teach your child young that um, that they would have a, a relationship with God. I think that's one of the things. You know, I went to church every Sunday, but. Um, you know, one of the things that um, I think that I love to see, especially in some of the younger people now, is they're just totally on fire for God. And um, and just they have that relationship with God. And that's what it all comes down to. And I think no matter if you're older, if you're younger, if you don't have a relationship with God and you're still going to church, you're still missing it. And you know inside that you're missing it because you show up and you go to church. and and But yet you don't have that relationship. And I think that's the priority is the relationship with God and, like, getting deeper with him. And it's, it's in my own life too, because I don't feel like I've ever really arrived, you know? <laughs> um, but one day we will arrive and we'll be there. And uh, I look forward to that. That's day. right. A, a word of encouragement then for the parent, uh, JD. Um, let's imagine they did everything as best they could raising the child, but yet God is ultimately loving the kid more than they do. What condition were you in when you did come to faith? I was doing a lot of drugs and a lot of searching and um, and then even got to a point in my life where I just kind of hit bottom and and, and realized that, um, you know, everything around me, that nothing really mattered was significant in my life. And uh, I was hanging out with some of my friends and um, the Lord just grabbed hold of my heart when I was actually on drugs one night and uh, was 21 years old. So I just want to say to all you mamas, keep praying because uh, your kids don't have a chance. Uh, my mom... Um, it's just an awesome godly woman. She's uh, was raised on a farm, but she knew the the she knew the value of praying for her kids, and uh, it just shows. I mean, it's just the power of prayer is just amazing. And you know, as individuals, we're gonna go, we're gonna stand and fall, but um, just keep praying. Power of prayer. And God can intrude on that at any time. Doesn't take an altar call. God came and got you where you were at. That's encouraging. Let, let's talk about the teens. Um, why is it that the young people seem to think they have to go outside the church at some point to find true life, to find excitement, to find fun? Why do they think that there's not a true fulfillment found in the church experience? Well, I think a lot of times we in church we can um, put on a front, and a lot of times we can we want to appear like we have it all together, you know and I mean, how many times have you walked in the doors of a church and, you know, you've been arguing with your wife or your kids and you walk in the door and act like everything's fine. Lord knows we all have. Put that down. Put that down. You walk in the door. Hi. Praise the Lord, brother. Good to see you. And uh, I think I think part of that, I think part of that for for a kid or for anyone is for the, the church is supposed to be a hospital. The church is supposed to be a place that people can come and feel like, man, I'm a sinner. <laughs> And I need Jesus, and that's why I'm here. I have, I, have a, I have a need of God in my life. And I think if that is on the forefront, like we don't, as parents, act like we have it all together, but apologize to our kids when we're mean to them and, you know, demonstrate that grace that we've been given, I think they, they will see that and, and have a 
they'll want that as well. I really do. Do you think, that's right. Do you think, John, do you think somehow that God's been misrepresented as being dull and that teens think, well, even a, a kid who's a Christian in the church, I'm going to go outside for a while, have some fun. I can always come back. I've heard the grace message. Why can't I come back later? Speak to the issue of the pain, uh, the, the, the consequences, and the trauma that can be inflicted by having that prodigal experience. Well, I think one of the things is, is definitely um, you miss out on so much. You know, you look back and you, and, and you look back at your life and say, man, I, those three or four years were just wasted time, you know, and I could have been, you know, so busy. And I look at the time that I've been walking with the Lord, and, and for many of you, you wouldn't have traded for the world. And um, it's like, why didn't I do it sooner? And I think um, that's the thing that um, if I had had one regret, I said, you know, why, why did I have to find out what hot was, you know, all the way? And, uh, but the Lord, you know, the Lord's faithful, and, and um, he continues to be. And we still, I, mean, I still fall. I still mess up. I still, I think that's part of it is this, it's a journey. And we have to be honest with our failures and honest with, um, I need to be honest with who he is and um, those around me. We need that accountability and love in our lives. You know, I neglected to mention that um, John has worked with Pete Nelson in the cry, traveled with them, and worked with Pete up in Denver. Pete, a good friend of ours and a part of this ministry for many, many years, and a bit of promotion. Um, John's album, Toward the Western Sky, available in the foyer. And uh, tell us about it, John. Oh, it's just a blast. Um, right after I got saved, I... Um, I started getting together with um, some friends of mine that were that were Christians and some weren't. We just said, hey, come over to the house. We'd have kids that were showing up on drugs and whatever. And pretty soon it just blew up and we started worshiping God. And before I knew it, uh, we had moved over to the other side of Indianapolis where I somehow got suckered into becoming the worship leader there. I don't know how exactly that worked. <laughs> but um, anyway, I had the cry come to Indianapolis and I just totally fell in love with my brother, uh, Pete Nelson, and uh, played at the cry for a while. And I had been praying for years, Lord, just open up the door for, to, for me to do a record in your time. And an individual approached me, and within a couple weeks, uh, the money was there, and Pete was like, let's do it. And we got some players together in L.A., and there it is. You've um, got a song here, Cut Nine, called Riverside. Is that California? You didn't, you didn't do a song about Riverside, California. Tell me you didn't. Uh, <laughs> It's probably more like, uh, you know, somewhere in Indiana or, or Colorado, more like. But, uh, but um, the Riverside song is, is just, uh, maybe I'll play it tonight for you guys so you can hear it. Why don't we do a final song? Yeah, that All sounds right, great. Let's do that. Because of our competitive nature, we're always interested in establishing who is the best. In the arena of athletics, this is easy to measure because we can judge the greatest by their performance. The most home runs, the most baskets, the most Super Bowl rings. And sometimes, athletes are very quick to inform us of their place in history. I am the greatest. When it comes to other performances, however, judging is not always so easy. Who is the greatest painter of all time? Was it Renoir or Rembrandt? And who is the greatest musician? Was it Bach? or Beethoven. Lennon or McCartney. Ultimate greatness in athletics and the arts are topics of endless discussion. 
But when it comes to deciding who is greatest in God's kingdom, there is no debate because Jesus tells us plainly, as we will hear tonight. This is vital to note because, unfortunately, there is a good bit of confusion about this issue. Some think you can be great in God's view because you are recognized for your talent or because you have a prominent place in the church community. Well, John and James were surprised to hear the words of Jesus on this subject, and you might be too. For the answer to who's the greatest, we turn to Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28, as we study the Bible together, line on line. Well, that sounds like a great idea. Why don't we get our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 20. How are you this evening? Good. Those of you who are not really well, just fake it. Why, you ask, because this is Bible study. And for the Christian, it is just a fantastic opportunity for us to get together, go over the Word, refresh our minds with truth. But there's something even greater. And that is that we all, unless we forget, are in the very presence of the living God. And it is His presence that makes the difference in all that we do. In the very fact that we're together here as believers with His Word open before us should strike our hearts with awe and a sense of expectation as we look to Him. So let's go ahead and honor Him right now by seeking Him in prayer. Lord, we thank You for Your goodness. And Lord... For the very fact that you would be here with us tonight, loving us, filling us with your presence, anointing this place, Lord, with all that you are. Lord, many of us have had a busy week. We come in with so many different distractions. And Lord, right now, we as a group just lay them at your feet. And Lord, we present them to you for your keeping during this hour so that we can really focus upon you and your word. Lord, as we look through these pages tonight, we ask that your word would penetrate our hearts and minds. And Lord, if there is correction that needs to be made in the way that we think, the way that we view you, the way that we view the world, Lord, we we gladly lay ourselves before you and ask, that you would do your work. Thank you, Lord, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you asked the question, who's the greatest? Now, those of you who feel like raising your hand, let me tell you, don't do it. It will look bad. Later on, you'll come to regret it. But we just saw the little clip of Muhammad Ali. I'm the greatest. I love that, by the way. He's one of my favorite athletes. He took boxing to a completely new level. And someone with so much moxie that they could come out and say, I'm the greatest. I'm pretty. You know, he just goes on and on. He's a fantastic guy. We as Americans cheer for that kind of stuff, don't we? I mean, we don't really like the mumbly kind of quiet guy who's a boxer. He says, yeah, I just, I'm the best in the world, but... I just wish there would be someone better than me so that I could really be challenged. No, we like the guy who stands out. Take another American icon, Hulk Hogan. Um, You don't know who he is. Hulk Hogan uh, was the champion for many years of the American Wrestling Federation. Now it's the NWO. And 
Uh, he's a wrestling figure. There is some controversy whether wrestling is real or not. Those of us who are diehard fans know the truth. <laughs> and then you have the world's greatest golfer. Some of you would say Arnold Palmer. But most of us today would say Tiger Woods, right? And it's obvious that we as a people, a society, a race, are obsessed with being the best and the greatest, aren't we? It's also apparent that we, it really doesn't matter what the issue is. We want to be the greatest at it. It doesn't matter how small the classification, how minuscule the task, how obscure it is, we still strive for the greatest, don't we? How many of you have ever been to Guinness World Book online? Or how many of you grew up with a copy of the Guinness World Book of Records? I did. I absolutely love them. Constantly flipping through the pages, thinking of something maybe that I could get involved in. Uh, <laughs> fingernail collecting or so forth. But you know, you have the world that you go immediately to the world's tallest man. You have the world's tallest woman, the longest fingernails. Have you seen that photo? That's about the grossest thing ever. But there's one grosser I found, and that's the longest ear hair in the world. In fact, I've seen a few of you, and um, you should probably you should probably submit some photos. Then you have. The most tattooed woman, 90% of her body completely tattooed. You have the smallest waist, um, the most body piercings in, in, than anyone else in the world. And you have the fastest car, the richest person, <coughs> Bill Gates. Um, it goes on and on and on. We're obsessed with it. Humans love greatness for whatever purpose and whatever a form it appears. And it even appears in the form of greatness in the church. I was reading a biography this last week about Bishop Ryle, and it was written by J.I. Packer. And so as I read this, you understand I respect both of these men greatly. But as I read through this, it stuck in my heart, and I want to share it with you. It says, What are the farther qualities that distinguish a great man from other good men? There are, I think, three. First, there is his achievement. Great persons make their mark in their own sphere, whatever that is. Think of Martin Luther and Albert Einstein. Second, there is his impact. Great persons become inspirers and energizers of others, benchmark figures whose personal ideals and ways of behaving set standards for others that were not set or at least not taken seriously before. Think of John Wesley and Winston Churchill. Third, there is his universality. Great persons transcend the limits of their own age and embody insight and wisdom for all who come after them. Think of Augustine or John Calvin. By these, Ryle was... Most certainly a great man. He made his mark in his own day as a leader who had a fine brain, an effective in-your-face way with words, a clear, compelling vision of spiritual reality, outstanding pastoral power deployed on paper in more than a dozen large books and over 200 tracts of various sizes with a total circulation of 12 million in at least a dozen languages 
and impressive organizing skills, and in his 20 years in Liverpool, most fully showed. His ministry had a life-changing impact on many in his own time. Now, as I read through that, I don't know about you, but I was not inspired. I'll say why. Because as I read the description of a great man uh, set out here by, by Packer, I think I will never be a person like that. If that's what greatness means, as I add up everything that I have in my greatness column, it doesn't come up very high. In fact, I come up very, very short. And I have a suspicion that many of you feel the same way when you see great men or women of God portrayed on television, or maybe you even walk around the church and for some strange, odd reason might even think that someone on the pastoral staff is great. Um, If you believe that, let me know if you think it's me. (laughs) And I'll give you my wife's phone number. Okay. (laughs) Now, in Matthew chapter 20, we encounter a group of guys that I love. Here's why. Because they make the kind of mistakes that I can relate to. They live the kind of lives that really glorify God because their inability is so apparent to us all. Look at verse 20 of Matthew 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine sit one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Do you not know what you ask? You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Now this is an interesting story. It's a story about loving kindness, God's loving kindness, and his ability to show us a better way. It's a story that shows the disciples' humanness in a way that allows us to relate to them in a real way. But most importantly, it draws a sharp contrast between the world's view of greatness and God's view of greatness. It's so easy for us common folk to just sort of brush over all that God has given us 
Because we look at the great, we look at the perfect ones, we look at the ones that are put before us on screen. Those are the ones who have made it to the top and they're the best. And because we're not, we somehow feel that our contribution is lessened. Note, the world views power, fame, and accomplishment as greatness. But Jesus said, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. In other words, serving God and others make up the rungs of a ladder that leads down to the level of humility that the Lord calls greatness in his kingdom. I love what Billy Graham said. He said, there's no indication that Christians should expect to be healthy, wealthy, and successful in this present age. Christ never told his disciples that they would get an Academy Award for their performances, but he did tell them to expect to have troubles. This age is interesting and interested, excuse me, in success, not suffering. We can identify with James and John who wanted the choice seats in the kingdom. We might even ask for reclining chairs and soft music. It's hard to relate, but yet this age that says, I want to be the best, constantly haunts us. You know where it haunts me the most? I'll tell you, a little secret, just a few of us here and on the radio and those of you on the Internet. (laughs) Now, I'm a golfer of sorts, the kind of sort that you don't want me on your foursome if you're in a tournament. (laughs) But I love to play, and I've played for many years. There's just something about the green grass. There's something about the fresh air. There's something about hitting something really hard with a stick. That's always been compelling since I was a kid. However, something happens to the average golfer, golfer, the nominal golfer, that has always been puzzling to me. Um, my son, I have my oldest son, is six years old, and from the time that he's about five, um, I've always taken him to the driving range. We hit a couple of buckets of balls, and we just have a lot of fun. It's a great time. But as I notice when I go out there to play, I see all of these guys, myself included, who are under the cloud and under the impression that somehow some of us there might be able to hit a ball like Tiger Woods. (laughs) You see the guys dressed in the Nike clothes, the $1,000 bag of golf clubs, the serious look, and the guy gets up there and he's standing like he's a a robot about to fall apart and he, you know, swings and he hits the ball and it goes over here and he gets mad. Ah, I can't stand that. I can't believe I did that. And I look over at him and I think, are you the only one who is completely unaware of your inability to hit the ball? (laughs) If you look out here, you got a bunch of hackers who are no good who are somehow believing that, you know, I I have it within me to hit the ball good. No, you don't. Just relax. You're no good. You should be surprised any time that you hit it straight and far. You should go, wow! Instead, you guys, you know the truth. You, you, You get up there and you hit the ball and somehow your back creaks just right and the wind catches you and you hit the ball and it goes straight and far and you just kind of... And you look around. You know who I'm talking about. 
But you live under this cloud. Like I'm supposed to be great because I know that it's within me. And it's the same way in the church. Now, you have to set the scene here for what the disciples were doing. The disciples had a very strong messianic expectation. It was toward the very end of Jesus' ministry. In fact, we're heading up to the final days. They're heading up for the last week to Jerusalem where he will have his triumphant entry into the city and then finally end upon a cross and then finally the resurrection. But as they're going up, there is this momentum that is being captured. And you can't miss that. They had been with him for three years. They had seen miracle after miracle. In fact, at a certain point, they had been empowered with powers to do miracles themselves. But even beyond that, there were many who were talking along the way who said, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one? Is he a prophet? Is he the guy who's going to come? Maybe he's the guy who's going to take us into the new millennium. He's the guy who's going to throw off the Roman cloak of of authority and oppression. And finally, there will be a revolt once again. And the city will be captured. And we'll once again rule in our own city. Because what had happened is that they had a Gentile Roman government ruling over them. Which was oppressive and would not do. And... Oftentimes, I believe we give the disciples way too much credit. And that we believe that they understand all of these deep theological issues. We understand the full impact of what was about to happen. As I read through the New Testament, I've been a Christian for a long time. The more I read, the more I understand that they, not unlike us, were very clueless most of the time. They had a strong messianic expectation. Now, in Matthew chapter 19, there was a rich young ruler who came, and he asked Jesus some questions, what he should do. And Jesus said, what what you need to do is sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the rich young ruler went away sad because he had many possessions. And Peter turns and says, well, who can be saved? You know, this guy was great. He was a big tither, well-respected in the community. But Jesus pressed right on the issue, right on the button that he knew that was at the heart of that man's life. A man expressing faith, but yet at the same time not willing to give up all. And so at the end of all of this, in verse 27, Peter answered and said to him, See that we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Finally, someone in the group spoke up and told the truth. We're heading up to Jerusalem. There's this messianic expectation. We left everything, Jesus. Nobody else will ask it, but I am. I will. My name's Peter. I'm the, that's my job. I'm the spokesman for the successive generations who will believe. What about us? So Jesus said to them in verse 28, Assuredly, I say to you that... In the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or lands for My sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Not only was there a messianic expectation that, hey, we're going up, 
There's going to be thrones. We're going to be ruling, so forth. There was a constant ongoing argument about who was the greatest. Now, just a little bit earlier, uh, we read uh, over in Matthew chapter 18, but where I'll read from is Mark chapter 9, verse 33. We have Jesus in Capernaum, and there had been some type of conversation on the way from Caesarea Philippi to Capernaum, and Jesus speaks to them in verse 33 of Mark. He says, When he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve to him, and he said, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Here we see once again their humanity on display. They are fighting about rank. Now, wait a minute. Now, these are disciples, right? These are people who have been living with Jesus. They should know better. But does it really surprise us that this group would be what we call so carnal? Surely spending time with Jesus should have changed their way of thinking. I mean, don't you think that? I mean, come on, guys, really. You're with the creator of the universe. He comes. You see him baptized at the Jordan River. Many of you begin to follow after him. You live with him. You see all of these miracles. He endows you with power. Come on, guys. Are you so slow that you don't get it? And used to when I was a kid, I grew up in Sunday school and going to church all my life. As I read some of these stories, I thought to myself, you know, probably the greatest thing that could ever happen to me would be to live with Jesus on the road. Now, not like Willie Nelson singing on the road again, (laughs) making music with my friends. I just can't wait to get on the road again. That's Willie Nelson. (laughs) And I don't know that that was the song of the disciples, but for me, the thought of living with Jesus, traveling with him would be fantastic. You wouldn't have any excuses. You wouldn't want to sin. You would, if you had a question, you just ask God right there, you know, you get the answer. Anything you ever wanted to know. But when we look at ourselves, can we honestly say that we today as believers are any different? Where does this desire to be best come from? And why are we willing to, rel- to risk relationships, loneliness, all that we have? To obtain it. Turn with me to the book of James and we'll look at chapter 4. Those of you who are unaccustomed from flipping through your Bible, maybe your hands are cramping, um, maybe we could suggest that you practice reading and flipping your Bible at home. I'm sorry, I'm being sarcastic. It's a Bible study. That was mean, wasn't it? Verse 1 of chapter 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? 
You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God and resist the devil and he'll flee from you. That's where it comes from. All of this hoopla about greatness and all of this idea of achievement, folks, really comes from a desire within us to have and to obtain. And at its very core, primarily, it is selfish. Oh, we have lots of beautiful explanations for our ambitions and desires. But as the scripture reveals to us, it comes from our own selfish desires. Now, look back with me at Matthew chapter 20. And I'll sort of give you an outline for the rest of this study. As we look at the text, verse 20 and 21, we have, first of all, the request. And then in verses 22 and 23, we have Jesus' reply. And in verse 24, we have the result of the request. And in verses 25 through 28, we have Jesus' redirection. First of all, let's look at verse 20 at the request. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came with him, came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and on the other on your left, in your kingdom. Now notice the scene here. Messianic expectation. Jesus is speaking about the regeneration, coming into the kingdom. You guys will be sitting upon thrones. If you believe that she has great theological understanding, you'll say that she's here on behalf of her sons asking about heaven. I personally don't believe that. I don't think they really fully understood what he meant by the regeneration or the new birth. There was an expectation that he would rule in Jerusalem. And so in a very sneaky, manipulative way, here comes mom with her two boys. Now these these were not young boys. These were men who had jobs and lives. She shows up with them. And she goes before Jesus, kneeling down and asking him a favor. Very manipulative. Lesson number one in this. Our request to God do not always reflect or represent his will. I'll restate that. Our request to God do not always reflect or represent his will. I'll tell you my own personal story. When I was a young man, uh, I was given a guitar, 
a young boy. I never played it much. I just drug it around the backyard and finally broke it in half with a stick. (laughs) Took some piano lessons. The teacher said, you're a perfectionist. You're very nervous. And I think you should quit before you have a nervous breakdown before 10. (laughs) That's what she told my folks. Thanks for the encouragement, teach. Anyway. Later on, I got a guitar and I started learning how to play. And I I learned to play a lot of songs and started playing at local places and doing pretty good, writing songs, playing in church. And I I finally got a scholarship. I went to a school that you could major. It's the only school in the country you could major in country and bluegrass music. (laughs) It's not that I was really into country and bluegrass music, but I was really into not doing anything else at college. So... (laughs) I did that for a while, but upon really getting serious about the Lord, I laid my guitar before him and I laid myself before him and I said, Lord, as I look at these award shows, the Grammys, the Oscars, and other smaller shows, and I see these people standing up there and they're thanking their mom, their dad, let me tell you, Lord, if you let me be a famous rock star... I'll thank you. <laughs> now, I'm sitting here. It sounds like a joke. But you know what? It was the truth. That's the sad thing. And I'm just willing to admit it. It was the truth. But I didn't understand what God's plan was for me. In fact, I'd been a Christian a long time. I thought that I knew what it meant to be a servant. But just like these disciples, I had a plan of greatness, somehow setting up on a throne and giving glory to God. If I'm known as the best receiving the reward, it will be even greater glory for you, Lord. Well, that was my cause. But my will doesn't necessarily reflect God's will. Our requests are sometimes selfish. Look at James and John, for instance. Their requests were very selfish. I love what Calvin Miller said. He said, oftentimes the American prayer is, Our Father who art in heaven... Gimme, gimme, gimme. (laughs) Selfishness, as A.W. Tozer said, is never so exquisitely selfish as when it's on its knees. Self can turn what would otherwise be a pure and powerful prayer into a weak and ineffective one. I may cry out loudly to God that the church be restored to its New Testament glory and splendor and be secretly dreaming that I may be the one to lead her. This type of request or prayer shows a lack of maturity that is uninterested in God's plans. And you know, if you've been praying, I'm just going to go ahead and lay it on you tonight. If you've been praying these kind of prayers and you're really upset because God isn't really doing what you think He ought to do, you know what it is? It's a sign of immaturity. You say, wait, David, that's harsh. Look, I have to deal with reality. The disciples have to deal with reality. What makes you think that you're going to get out of this? It's immaturity. Oswald Chambers had this to say. He said, in our natural life, our ambitions are our own. In the Christian life, we have no aim of our own. And God's aim looks like missing the mark because we are too short-sighted To see what he is aiming at. God, why do you have me in this position? I should be up there. God, why do you have me doing this lowly job? 
It's only a complaint that comes from short-sightedness who can't see over the horizon and what God's real aim is. Okay, we have the request. Now let's look at the reply, verses 22 and 23. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said, being James and John, we are able. And he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. Okay, first off, we notice that our requests do not always reflect or represent God's will. But second of all, we notice that our requests are often out of our own ignorance. The only reason these guys were asking this question and his mom, their mom was involved, is because they really didn't know what they were asking. And oftentimes as we ask God for greatness or something more mighty or something bigger, we really don't know what we're asking for. He asked them, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? You know what he was talking about, don't you? Reflect all the way forward to the garden in Jerusalem where Jesus in great agony cries out and said, Lord, if there is any way that this cup can pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. They believed that it was the throne that was the most important thing. And oftentimes, around Jesus, we look at the greatness, but we neglect to see the greater, the more difficult task that lies ahead. But here's their answer. They ask in ignorance, and they answer in ignorance. We are. We're able to do it. Now, you have to notice who these guys are. These guys were a couple of nobodies from nowhere who had been on a spiritual search, who had came upon Jesus, and Jesus drew him to himself, and they began to learn. But something fantastic had happened. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus endows them with power, the ability to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to do all of these incredible, mighty things. In fact, it was such an incredible spectacle. Jesus said, I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. These two were also very famous in that they were known as the sons of thunder. They were the guys who, when they went into a city and the people rejected them, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? Now, They had to believe that they had this kind of power in order for them to make some kind of outrageous statement like that. But you notice something that there is a hazard in hanging out with Jesus. Namely, the temptation to believe that his abilities and accomplishments are our own. There's a real hazard there. Now, I have four kids. And the last kid that we have, number four, is two years old. 
He's a little redhead, kind of an orangutan, crazy kid. But he's just a joy to have in the house, you know, kind of messing up stuff, getting into the cabinets, tearing up stuff, you know, squeaking, swinging across chandeliers and going through the house. Well, lately, he's discovered dad. He's gone beyond mom. Mom's kind of boring at this part. You know, she's has some nice nurturing skills for late in the evening, but dad's cool. And one of the things he likes to do, as soon as we I get home to the house, he'll run out of the house, and all the kids will run out, and they'll yell, Dad's home, Dad's home. And they'll give me, they fight to see who gets to hug me first. Well... He wanted to go with me, and every time he would want to go with me, he would look at my car and say, Dad's home. Now, I told this to a friend, and they said, Oh, how sad. You obviously spend too much time away from the house. Your car is Dad's home. But actually what he was saying is that every time he sees me, Dad's home. You know, Dad's home. Well, the other night, uh, we were playing in the house, I told you that story. It has absolutely no meaning. I just thought it was cute, okay? <laughs> now, he loves hanging out with me when I mow the lawn and do other things. He'll sit in the chair next to me, and he'll try to engage in all different kinds of things that we do. The other night, uh, I'd let him jump on top of me, and he would roar, and I would pretend to be scared, and he, he loved it. He tried to dominate me for like four hours straight until I finally said, forget it. I'm not scared of you anymore. I know you're not going to hurt me. But he has the sense that when he's with me, he can almost do anything. And you know what? When my son is with dad, he can almost do anything. His father will allow him. Notice Jesus' words to James and John. They said stupid things. They didn't have all the power. The only reason that they had power was because he allowed them to have it. Because it was of the Father and it was because he was hanging out with them. And he was the one who gave them the power. But notice the love. He may not have had the power, but they certainly had Jesus' heart. He said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it is prepared by my Father. He said, one day you will indeed drink of that cup. But there was a couple who was prepared for his entrance into Jerusalem. There was a thief on one side and a thief on the other as he hung on the cross. They had no idea what they were asking for. But, however, James... Early on, the book of Acts was beheaded. Later on, his brother John, who penned um, much of the New Testament, legend tells us that he was boiled in oil and survived and was banished to the Isle of Patmos. Now, Jesus informs them of this coming in verse 17 in Matthew 20 when he said, Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles and mock and scourge and to crucify. 
And on the third day, he will rise again. Now, Jesus warned them that this event would come. But notice here in verse 20, or verse 24, the result of the actions of these two and their mom. It says in verse 24, When the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. So not only, first, do we notice that our request to God does not always reflect His or represent His will. And secondly, we notice that our requests are often out of our own ignorance. But we notice in this passage that our personal ambition for position or power will usually cause disunity in the group. Whatever group you're in, if you're all about power, you're going to cause disunity in the group. It always destroys the group dynamic of mutual respect and unity. I love what it says in James 3. He says, how great a forest a little fire kindles. The fire being set by the tongue. Selfishness on the part of the believer can cause trouble in the lives of others. I love a quote from a particular fellow. He said, all ambitions are lawful except those which climb upward on the miseries of others. That's not Jesus' way. And it makes everybody mad. Don't you hate it at work? When you have somebody who's always trying to get in there with the boss. Oh, boss, oh, you're looking nice today. Wow. You know, they're wearing like a brown leisure suit and kind of 70s hair. And you're like, wow, that's new. You know, that's coming back. All right. Are you losing weight? Whenever you hear that kind of stuff, you just say, ah, gag, you know. No respect. People begin to distrust you. Now, that was the result of their actions. But notice in verse 25 through 28, Jesus redirects their thoughts to what is right. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus redirects their thinking to something new. Jesus introduces them to a new paradigm, a totally new way of thinking about what it means to be great. I mean, really, you need to notice this passage. Out of everybody who had ever existed in the world, there's never anything quite so radical recorded in world history than what Jesus has said in this passage. What he shows is a totally new way of what it means to be great. Which brings us to a fourth point. Real greatness is not measured by your ability to exercise authority and power over others. Real greatness comes from a depth of character that will gladly sacrifice and serve for the betterment of others. Notice what Jesus says. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. He's saying here is that you know how it works. We all know how it works, don't we? Grow up in in school, the big kids in the schoolyard, a little bit tougher, aggressive, 
They're the ones who get more food to feed their bigger, tougher, aggressive selves because they're taken away from the younger ones. The ones who have the greater athletic ability are the ones who shine and who get the trophies and who are on the football field. Those who have the higher uh, authority, those who have the ability to manipulate, those who have the ability to do well in this world are often stamped as great. And he says, guys, you know how it works. You understand that. I love what William Barclay said very succinctly. He said, The world may assess a man's greatness by the number of people whom he controls and who are at his beck and call, or by his intellectual standing and his academic eminence, or by the number of committees of which he is a member, or by the size of his bank balance and material possessions which he has amassed. But in the assessment of Jesus Christ, these things are irrelevant. It is a contrast. He says, you know how it works, but it should not be so among you. If you want to be great, he goes on to show us, this is how you do it. He tells us very plainly, let him be the servant, and whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Now, as we wrap this up, I want to point out two things. There are two words here that are very important for us. First of all, there is slave. It's diakonos. And it speaks of a very lowly house servant. It's the lowliest of all the servants. But then he talks about the slave. Not only do you have the servant, but you have the slave. And the slave, the doulos, is someone who does not belong to himself but to his master and can only go where the master wanted him to go and do what the master wants him to do. And as we look at that, we think, what are you talking about greatness here? How do you say that a slave and a servant is better than someone who has a high position? What's so important about being a slave? Well, first of all, as we notice, the most important thing about a servant is that he makes someone else's life better. He does the work that needs to be done. And how do we become great in serving others? We meet the needs that make their life greater. Notice here, look at the life of Jesus. He is the greatest, by the way. It's not Muhammad Ali. Verse 28, he says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Question, why did Jesus become a servant? answer because we needed it and he was the only one who could do the job the world didn't need another person to come and tell everybody how to do it to come up with a plan to organize everyone what the world needed was God himself to come and present his life a ransom for the sins as payment for a lost and dying world and Jesus came And did that. And he shows us that God, who was the creator, the greatest of them all, because of his love for others, was willing to submit himself to something so terrible. To come as a slave, to come as a servant. Why? Because we need it. Now look around you. Really, look around the room. Don't hurt your neck, but... um, 
there's a lot of needs represented here. Imagine a world where people actually serve one another. Think about it. Think about it. That was the standard. No, 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 no. I'll get the door. That's fine. No, 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 buddy. I'll get the check. I don't worry about it. Go on home. I'll clean up. Imagine your relationship in your house. Instead of fighting to see who's going to do the dishes or who has to pick up the yard or who has to take out the trash, the idea would be flip-flopped around to say, hey, I'll get it since I'm the greatest. (laughs) I guess you know I'll be doing a lot of um, work around the house. Imagine that kind of world. That's the kind of world where Jesus elevates that status of a servant to greatness. And wouldn't it be a great place to live? Not clawing on the back of each other to get ahead. Second thing we notice is that, a, that of the slave. The slave owes his life to another. His life is not his own. I love what it says in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For we were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. A slave is somebody who has been bought by someone else who owes their life completely to him. And I love the way that you have Paul and many of the early disciples begin to take up this nomenclature, this language of servanthood, by calling themselves a bond slave, a servant of Christ. It became a catchword for the early church. Who am I? Paul, a slave. I serve Jesus. I'd like to close with something from Samuel Bringle. It's found in Oswald Sanders' classic, Spiritual Leadership. If I appear great in their eyes, the Lord is most graciously keeping me to see how absolutely nothing I am without Him. And helping me to keep my little, keep little in my own eyes, He does use me, but I am so concerned that he uses me and that it is not of me the work is done. The axe cannot boast of the trees it is cut down. It could do nothing but for the woodsman. He made it, he sharpened it, and he used it. The moment he throws it aside, it becomes only old iron. Oh, that I may never lose sight of this. God has a great, wonderful plan for us, guys. He really does. But it has very little to do with getting caught up in our culture, in our society, and trying to become great and and to be involved in a world that is so quickly perishing. And I just want to speak to you as a friend. I'm I'm from behind the pulpit. I've been a, a Christian since I was... Seven years old, I gave my life to Christ as a young man. And um, I'm going to tell you the greatest experience I've ever had is just submitting to Christ. You're Christians. You can sit around like the early disciples and sit around and wonder, dream of greatness. You're never going to find fulfillment until you submit to Him as His slave, 
and His servant. And as you do that, you begin to mature and you begin to see a whole different world. Now, am I perfect at it? Absolutely not. The more that I read this, I'm so convicted of the way I've been for the last week. But let us all push each other on toward godliness, to the truth, and not settle for second best. And let's serve each other like Jesus wants us to serve. That's a challenge. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, God, for the meaning that you bring to our lives. Such pitiful lives without you. And you bear with us in our immaturity. You bear with us in our weakness. And Lord, we love you for that. Like the little child, we want to hang out with you. And sometimes we get confused as to who's actually doing it. And we take the credit for ourselves. And God, please forgive us for that. For we know that nothing can be accomplished for time and eternity without your signature, without your power. Lord, what a beautiful congregation. People who, have, who love you. And we're here at your feet. And Lord, I, I may be so bold to speak to, as a, a leader of the group tonight. But Lord, make us your servants. To do your bidding. To work for you in this world. To be like the axe that is used with great skill by your hands.